with reports of between 20 and 100 people dead on a day of unprecedented protest against President Bashar al-Assad. The violence followed a week of unrest and calls by opposition activists for countrywide protests after Friday prayers today. The shootings are said to have taken place in al-Salamein. There were other demonstrations in the capital, Damascus, and in the towns of Hama and Atal. There are also reports of gunfire in the southern town of Daraa, where anti-government protests last week led to the reported deaths of around 50 people. You know, and because of the violence that was seen there, we saw protests in support of the people of Dada around the country in the past week. We drove sort of 100 kilometers down south uh, to Dara, and as we entered the city, we went first through one outer ring of security, and then as we approached the center of the city, uh, there was an entrenched uh, checkpoint with two heavy machine guns set up pointed down the road, and a group of at least, uh, I'd say a dozen or so, uh, Syrian army soldiers. They took our IDs. We are accredited to be reporting here in Syria. They worked the radios for a bit, and then they came back to the car and said, sorry, you have to turn around, you have to go back. We are not allowing any media into the city today. They said you can try to come back tomorrow. We pushed the issue with them, and they said we're not even letting Syrian state television into the city today. But yes, there was a lot of people who wanted to see probably Bashar and the regime go after 40 years. Totally natural. There's too much of a gap in wealth. There's too little development in Syria. There are terrible droughts. But at the same time, there's a map, there's a party called the Ba'ath Party, and it's a patronage system. And there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands, maybe a couple million people that belong to the Ba'ath Party. There are lots of prominent business people. There are a lot of prominent people in the military, etc., who benefit from this regime. This regime is not going to go down uh, easily. This is What Happened to Syria, 
a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. Last time, we left off at what some people would call Chapter 1 of our story. We looked at how events throughout the 20th and 21st centuries gradually contributed to what happened in March 2011. We examined how protests in Syria tied in with a global wave of unrest, particularly in countries that routinely arrest and torture people who express dissent. A quick, a quick reminder about our series format. Every other episode will focus on the chronology, on what happened. The remaining episodes are divided between those that focus on topics versus those that focus on a person or group of people. This is our second chronological episode, the third episode in our series thus far. The first episode examined how the Syrian revolution began. This phenomenon took place at a time when Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, and several other Arab nations were experiencing outright revolution, or at least unprecedented calls for serious reform. Some heads of state, such as Zain Ben Ali and Hosni Mubarak, were forced out of power after they had spent decades ruling their nation with an iron fist. Others, typically monarchs who had inherited their power, rather than seized it in a coup, responded to the protests by at least pretending to hear the protesters' complaints about cost of living and public corruption and made a few concessions. The kings of Morocco, Jordan, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia placated public anger by granting, relatively speaking, greater freedoms, repealing unpopular laws, and forcing corrupt officials to resign. Some of the revolutions in 2011 toppled governments. Some of them simply caused governments to change without pulling them out root and stem. And then you have cases like Libya, where Muammar Gaddafi refused to make any concessions to protesters and helped spark a civil war when he made speeches promising to cleanse Libya, quote, inch by inch, house by house, alleyway by alleyway, unquote, in response to increasing protests against his decades-long dictatorship. By March, the Libyan civil war, the first of them, was already underway. Anti-government protests had started a month earlier and were immediately met by massacres. The international community turned their back on Gaddafi, while massacres took place in Libya's streets, and several high-ranking officials in the regime announced their support for the opposition. Even Gaddafi's longtime allies were appalled and publicly called for him to seek a negotiated settlement with the Libyan opposition. Soldiers began to join the protesters and give them weapons, which they used to return fire when Gaddafi's forces came to kill them. And thus Libya found itself engulfed in skirmishes and outright battles by March of 2011. People expected the protests in Syria to turn out like the other examples, concessions or an immediate descent into civil war. But reality turned out to be more complicated than media speculation. Syria, especially its cities, would eventually replace Libya as the Middle East's big war, but not until after the first Libyan civil war had come to a close and Gaddafi was dead. What people call the Syrian civil war was slower to develop and went on for far longer, long enough for multiple wars elsewhere in the world to start and finish. The Syrian civil war came about after the Syrian revolution, when people tried to achieve reforms by protesting, not by engaging in violence. Our first episode focused on how the Syrian revolution started, concluding on March 15th, 2011. Today, we pick back up on that day to watch how the Syrian revolution played out and explain why it took such a tragic and ugly turn.
One thing we're going to need to keep in mind going forward is that not all Syrians think the same way. Different Syrians have different political outlooks. There are some people in Syria who look at March 15th, 2011, they look back on it with amazement. It was the first day where major protests were found all over the country. They weren't quite as big as they would get later, but this was still a big first step. But for some Syrians, this was a terrifying time for them. For Syrians who saw the regime as a good thing, for Syrians who saw Bashar al-Assad as a good leader who had done good things for Syria, they looked at this with fear. And in large part, this was exacerbated by how the regime characterized what was going on. The regime is going to characterize any and all forms of, of opposition as violent or extremist. So very early on, people who were uninterested in violence, people who just wanted to protest for reforms, they went out of their way to demonstrate the fact that their intentions were peaceful. And a whole bunch of them still got killed. On March 15th, 2011, there are large protests taking place in Damascus, Hasaka, Derazor, Hama, and smaller ones in Aleppo. Okay, that's an important point right there. Aleppo. Aleppo in 2011 was not known for protests. It was, this was very rare. There were people in Aleppo who opposed Bashar al-Assad, but because Aleppo was one of the richest cities in Syria, it was very pro-regime. The rich in Syria almost all at least claimed to support Bashar al-Assad. And in large part, it makes sense because, as we discussed in the first episode, the regime controlled who could or couldn't get rich. This was not a free market economy. Every rich person in Syria, in some shape or form, owed their prosperity to the regime. And in turn, the regime demanded loyalty. This played a big role in, in helping them to control the middle and working classes. These protesters would, would gather and march in the streets. Sometimes they would literally fill up the streets. That's how many people there were. You'd have, you'd have both lanes of traffic and both sidewalks just filled to the brim with people marching in one direction and chanting certain phrases in unison. Chants, they were chanting certain things like, Allah, Surya, Hurya, Wabas. That's, that means God, Syria, freedom, and nothing else. If you ever go on YouTube and watch videos of the protests in Syria in March of 2011, there's a certain chant you often see people using. It's just one word, and they say it over and over again. In English, it means peaceful. Selmeye. So at various points, you've got thousands of people marching in the street, chanting this word over and over. Why would they do that? Why are they chanting the word peaceful over and over and over again? These people, the protesters, they knew, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the regime would call them violent extremists. They knew that their opponents were going to smear them as being terrorists. So remember what I said about how they went out of their way to emphasize the fact that their intentions are peaceful, they are trying to remain peaceful? Yeah, that's why they're marching down the streets chanting, peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. They're literally video of these hundreds or sometimes thousands of people marching down roads or gathering in public squares chanting, Allah, Surya, Horia, Wabas, and Samaye, 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 God, Syria, freedom, and nothing else. Peaceful, 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 peaceful. Generally speaking, people who ascribe to the worldview of Osama bin Laden, for example, they don't tend to put a lot of emphasis on peace or freedom. Now, for the last 10 years at this point, supporters of the Assad regime have made all kinds of outlandish claims and accusations 
against the protesters, especially those in March of 2011. They often describe these protesters as being either CIA or Mossad or Zionist or Wahhabi, some kind of something-something conspirators and terrorists. And the, actually, the phrase that you often hear a lot of people, especially use on social media, uh, quote, regime change agents, unquote. These people in 2011, these protesters in Syria in March 2011, they weren't calling for the regime to fall, not most of them. A small minority, perhaps, for kind of understandable reasons. But most of them weren't that ambitious. Even, I'm, sure, I'm sure a certain number of them like, probably wouldn't have been sad to see Assad resign, for example. But that's not what they were working towards. They weren't, they weren't going out into the streets and risking being beaten up or shot for Assad to fall. Not yet. Not in March of 2011. Protesters were, at this point wanted four things. The release of political prisoners the end of Syria's 48-year-long emergency law, as it was called. This is a 48-year state of emergency that basically gave the military unlimited power, which ties in with, with a third thing they wanted, which is just greater freedom in general. Like, hey, uh, Bashar, you said you were going to bring us democracy and reforms and stuff. We've been waiting 11 years since you came to power. You haven't changed much, bro. And the last thing they wanted was accountability for corrupt and abusive government officials. People like Atef Najib, the jackass whose misconduct helped spark the unrest in Dara. These protesters, even when they gathered in large numbers, were still taking a huge risk. They could have easily been beaten up by police officers who would routinely beat up and otherwise abuse people. They could have easily been shot up to pieces by the soldiers who were deployed to pacify neighborhoods. They could have easily been abducted by intelligence agents, who would then take them to prisons like Sidonia and either torture them into confessing information or just torture them to death. But the greatest danger the protesters faced was from literal street thugs who were paid by the government to act as enforcer. Okay, that's a slight oversimplification. These people I'm talking about, they, they're thugs. They're criminals. You could basically think of them as hitmen. And they worked for crime bosses who did business with officials in the regime. Now, to somebody who's not from Syria, this probably sounds completely insane. I thought it, that's, that was what I thought when I first heard of this. But if you talk to anybody from Syria regardless of their political outlook, you know, whether they're pro-Assad, anti-Assad, you talk to anybody from Syria, you ask them about the Shabiha, they'll tell you some stories. In fact, you don't even need to go to that effort. I got a quote for you right here. This is from Qasem Eid's memoir, My Country. Quote, We called these plainclothes agents the Shabiha. They were thugs, ruthless men loyal to the Assad regime. They had been created by Hafez al-Assad to do his dirty work, Mostly Alawites, the closer they were related to the Assad family, the more vicious they were. On this occasion, they were carrying clubs, crowbars, swords, shotguns, and AK-47s. They also deployed SUVs and fire trucks. Fire trucks! Using their hoses as water cannons. Unquote. He also mentions, the pro he also mentions times where the Shabiha would either fire bullets into the air or would just fire at the crowds. Qasem Eid is a Syrian from Modamia, which is close to Damascus. He is currently a refugee. 
My Country is His Memoir. Again, we try to mix up the academic stuff with the on-the-ground perspective. I got thrown off a little at one point by the mention of swords. I'm just picturing my head as, uh, are these some, like, Ottoman-era family heirlooms? I don't know, it it really paints a very vivid picture. And I've I've seen footage of them using fire trucks, like Qasem E. described, where they, first they spray all the water at protesters the way, you know, it's a water cannon, like he said. And then in some of these videos, they, they'll literally just drive into the crowds with these fire trucks. God knows how many people they injured or killed doing stuff like that. Before we move on, let's take a more, let's look at another quote about the Shabiha. This is from an academic text. This is from The Syrian Revolution by Yasser Munif. Quote, the Shabiha, ghosts in Arabic, refers to the informal networks of thugs with whom the Syrian regime has developed strategic relationships with since the 1970s. They are the, uh, they are the eyes and ears of the state in the neighborhoods where they are based. To reward their loyalty, the regime allows them to engage in drug trafficking and smuggling of various commodities. Unquote. That was a quote from the Syrian Revolution by Professor Yasser Munaf. At this point, the security forces were more inclined to fire warning shots. They'll fire off a few rounds, people get scared, and they run away. Because, you know, people tend to run away when they think they're about to get shot. But in Damascus, at least, there were times where protesters were quite literally set upon by the Shabiha. You, you had these street thugs, as we've been calling them, showing up with clubs or knives or all the other, uh, all the other stuff that Qasem Eid described, and they just go to town on the protesters. They would earn their pay as leg breakers. It was on this day that a longtime pro-democracy activist named Sahar Alatasi gained international prominence when she gave interviews to multiple news outlets about the protests. She knew she was putting a target on her back doing this, but she still took that risk in order to tell the world what was happening in Syria, in order to counter the imminent pro-regime narrative that this was violent unrest caused by Islamic extremists. She took this risk in order to get the truth out that this is a peaceful movement calling for reforms. The next day, on March 16th, 200 people gathered in Damascus right outside the Interior Ministry building calling for the release of political prisoners. Most of these people were beaten up and arrested. But the stuff that was going on in Damascus was just a small taste of what Dara was seeing. One place we're going to mention a lot in this episode and episodes going forward is a neighborhood in Dara called Al-Balad. Al-Balad was basically the epicenter of the conflict that took place between the opposition and the regime in Dara. This will be one of the hardest hit parts of Dara when the regime decides to crack down and stamp out opposition in the city. And you've also got smaller-scale protests taking place in other parts of Syria. And once again, you've got more police attacking more protesters. But this time, some people start to fight back. Now, remember how I said that the day before, on March 15th, people would generally run away when the cops or soldiers would start attacking them? This time, on March 16th, you start to see some people brawling in the streets. Sahir Alatasi and several other activists were arrested immediately in response to their outspoken opposition to the regime the day before. And in, in this span of time, you start to see that the regime's early reaction to, to the protests and the increasing unrest was just 
all over the place because you had this vast bureaucracy of 17 or more different intelligence agencies reacting in different ways. Some, some offices claimed that the protests were in support of the regime, not pointing out its flaws. And again, it's, it is worth pointing out that actual calls for regime change were rare at this point, but that's not what the protests were. They were not pro-Assad. They weren't quite anti-Assad, but they weren't saying, our president is awesome. That's not what they were chanting. There were cases where intelligence officers would infiltrate the protests and shout pro-government or pro-Assad slogans. So that kind of helped feed into that lie that, oh, these are actually pro-Assad protests, because you'd actually have dudes who would sneak in to say that stuff. They were immediately shouted down. It's also almost certain that there were some informants among the protesters. I mean, protesters eyed each other with distrust. Like there, You wouldn't even see people make small talk with each other out of fear that the person standing next to them was actually going to rat them out to the regime immediately afterward. This is something that people from free countries don't understand about totalitarian governments. Now, somebody like me from the United States, we don't know what it's like to constantly look at our fellow citizens with suspicion and think, if I do anything in front of them, I'm going to get reported to people who will torture me to death. Now, somewhere around March 17th, you start to see protests outside of Syria in solidarity with Syrian protesters. One such example took place in Cairo, the capital of Egypt. Several Egyptians gathered to show solidarity with Syrian protesters, and this enraged the Syrian embassy security. They briefly kidnapped one of the Egyptians and beat up several others. This is in Egypt. These Syrian security people are doing this in a foreign country, technically speaking. And while all this is going on, we can't overlook the fact that protests are constantly going on in Dara. The people in Dara are still angry about the people who got detained on March 6th, ostensibly for writing anti-Assad graffiti. Dara is already the epicenter of the unrest, but no one is expecting what's about to take place the next day. Tomorrow, March 18th, is yet another day that changed everything in an even bigger way than March 15th. March 15th, 2011 is sometimes referred to by Syrians as the Day of Rage, when they publicly express their anger. March 18th is called the Friday of Dignity, when people proudly stood up. Now, again, I emphasize these protesters don't speak for all Syrians, but the fact that the number of people going out into the streets to say this stuff is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger as time goes on, it goes to show that somewhere around like half the population agreed with them. On March 15th, you had hundreds of people marching in different parts of Syria. On March 18th, you've got thousands in Dara alone. And Dara is not a big place either. It's a relatively small city. It's mostly agricultural. Thousands of people took to the streets in Dara on March 18th. These people were done asking nicely now. They were upset earlier, but now they were angry as hell. They want the people who were detained on March 6th to be released. They want Atef Najib and other, and other corrupt officials to be put in jail. And they're not going to take being abused or humiliated lying down anymore. A relatively small, mostly agricultural community where family and tribe are, are the dominant social forces is now determined to tell a dictatorship that they won't submit to tyranny anymore. This is no longer a protest. This is an uprising.
In other parts of Syria, you still have localized protests, but in Dara, it's graduated to the same kind of uprising you see in other countries experiencing the Arab Spring. I want to turn to a passage from Wendy Perlman's book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, to illustrate the point I'm trying to make. This is Ahmed, an activist from Dara, quoted by Wendy Perlman. Quote, People from leftist parties had planned a protest in front of the Dara City Hall. My father was one of them. When they arrived, they were surprised that the place was filled with security agents waiting for them. So they just walked away, without even raising a banner or chanting a word. The same night, intelligence agents arrested some of those men, including my dad. They insulted them and told them that they better not even think of protesting. The men were set free that night. They decided to have a march the next morning at the mosque after Friday prayers. Unquote. Friday. So March 18th is a Friday. Keep that in mind. Quote. Why the mosque? Because that's the only place where people can gather without the security services stopping them. The next day, there were security agents stationed in Dara's two main mosques. So my dad's group went to a new small mosque called Hamzawa Abbas. They found no officers there, but they did find the families of the arrested kids. They had a secret signal to get the protest going. After the imam finished his sermon, someone would shout, God is great. Allahu Akbar. Others would repeat after him, and they'd all walk over toward the, to Al-Omari, the major mosque in town. And that's what happened. The kids' families joined the protest because they were already angry. They reached Al-Omari, and, and the people who were praying there joined the protest too. We expected that people would sympathize with us, but we were surprised that it took only minutes for everyone to know what was happening when they saw us marching. People joined and started chanting. They came from everywhere, from houses, from streets, from other mosques. And at that moment, we were no longer in control of the situation. It became a public matter. We hadn't been protesting long when we saw helicopters bringing security agents to the municipal stadium. Buses of soldiers were already there. The demonstration gathered at the edge of the valley, which separated us from the part of town where the government institutions are located. The security forces gathered on the other side, too. People came. The mayor and officer who arrested the kids came, too. They threatened to arrest and kill people if they didn't back down. That made people even angrier. They continued demonstrating, and then started to throw stones. The security forces opened fire. Two people were killed. A third was injured and later died from his wounds. People in Dara might have gone home that night, or tried to find another solution, if the regime hadn't shot and killed people. The next day, people went to the funeral for martyrs and started chanting against the regime. Demonstrations continued and security forces killed more people. At that point, we realized the protest couldn't be turned back. The situation had changed from a political idea to a popular movement. Unquote. That was Ahmed, an activist from Dara, quoted by Professor Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. Now, do you remember when I mentioned a few minutes ago that I've seen videos of fire trucks being used to attack protesters? I've seen video of protesters in Dara on March 18th, 2011, approaching this, this bridge. I'm pretty sure that's what Ahmed was referring to, the edge of the valley. So in the video, you see this huge gathering of people, thousands of people marching toward this bridge. And then on the other and then you see these fire trucks coming, crossing that bridge. And then behind the fire trucks, you've got what looks like a smaller army of people. It's not quite thousands. There's like hundreds of people who have gathered in opposition. Those are very likely security forces and just 
pro-regime civilians mixed up together. They're standing behind the fire trucks, and that's when the fire trucks start to spray the protesters with water and then try to run them down. Now, some people will probably listen to, to what I just said about how these people gathered at a mosque, and then they walked to another mosque, and then more people came out of the mosque, and then they're all protesting. And when you hear all those mentioning of mosques and praying, you pro some people might get the impression that, oh my god, these were all Muslim fundamentalists, or even fanatics, or extremists, or what, ha what have you. But that's really not the case. I want to turn now to another book. This is a book called Assad or We Burn the Country by Sam Daguerre. Again, I don't know if I pronounced his last name right, but, you know, that's the person who wrote that. So, according to Mr. Sam Daguerre, quote, Many of the organizers were not particularly pious Muslims. They chose the mosque to kick off their protest for more practical reasons. Protests were forbidden in Syria, but mosques were one of the few places where large crowds could gather in public without immediately drawing the Makabarat's attention. Still, the dreaded security agencies kept a diligent and watchful eye on most mosques and vetted sermons delivered by clerics during the midday communal prayers on Fridays. Security forces were, pro were posted outside several mosques in Dara that Friday because the Makabarat had information of a possible protest. One of the exceptions was the Hamza Wabas Mosque in the city's southernmost neighborhood, a poor and neglected area just a few miles from the Jordanian border, unquote. That was an excerpt from Assad, We Burn the Country by Sam Daguerre. And that neighborhood is, he's referring to is a, neighbor, is a neighborhood called Ar Arbain. I, I can't even say it. It's, a, it. it's the neighborhood where those teenage boys and young men snuck out at night a month earlier and sprayed a wall with anti-regime graffiti that led to all those people being arrested, which kicked off this whole mess. One thing leads to another. Speaking of one thing leading to another, a lot of measures that the regime took in an attempt to make the protests stop ended up exacerbating the protests. In particular, on March 18th, you had an increase in the number of people who were killed. Nowadays, you see more and more security forces are switching from firing warning shots to shooting to kill. A whole bunch of people got killed on March 18th, 2011, mostly in Dara. But this tended to result in bigger protests, because the funerals for all those people, which would usually take place a day or two afterward, would become their own protests. And as we, as you as we just saw with the with the quotes we went over, these protests are contagious. This is some kind of this is some facet of human nature. It's something primal where we see a group of people chanting something, doing something, and for some reason we feel we feel compelled to follow and partake in it. It's difficult to describe for people who haven't experienced it firsthand. Something like that compelled Syrians when they saw their countrymen marching in the streets chanting Allah Surya Khoria Wabas to join in and also chant Allah Surya Khoria Wabas, God, Syria, freedom, and nothing else. So while the uprising is getting started in Dara, you still have smaller scale protests taking place in other cities throughout Syria. There were protests, there were people in Douma, for example, protesting in solidarity with, with Dara as well as for their own grievances, especially economic ones. These were oftentimes protests that would directly mention Rami Makhlouf, Bashar al-Assad's cousin, and basically the oligarch of all oligarchs in Syria's corrupt economy. 
Roughly 200 people gathered at the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus to protest before they were dispersed by the police and Shabiha. Now, I, I, it's worth pointing out here that Damascus was a uniquely difficult place to protest, being the country's capital city. Every national capital has a higher than average amount of security in it. So in Damascus, that place, you couldn't be as open as you could be in a place like Dara at this point. But it's not just Damascus. You also had 200 protesters who gathered at the Khaled al-Walid Mosque in Homs, and a couple thousand people marched in Banyas, chanting, God, Syria, freedom only, Allah, Surya, Horea, Wabas. And of course, violence by law enforcement and Shabiha also took place there. So March 18th, just this huge day. I'm sorry if it sounds repetitive to March 15th, but like March 18th was March 15th on a larger scale. Syria has not seen a day like this since the early 1980s. People at this, some people at this point in 2011 were hopeful and even joyous. Others, oftentimes the rich, but not always. There were also people in the working and middle classes who supported the regime for various reasons. There were some people who looked at this with fear. And at this point, I want to turn to a book that I think we're going to be quoting a lot. This is a book called The Impossible Revolution by Yassine Al-Hajj Saleh. Now, this guy is not like the other people I've, I've quoted. He's not just some academic. Yassin al-Hajj Saleh is a guy who has spent his entire life as an activist for greater rights in Syria. He, he is often described as one of, the, one of the greatest writers and the greatest thinkers, not only in Syria, but in the Arab world. Yassin al-Hajj Saleh could basically be described as the philosopher of the Syrian revolution. And he writes in his book, The Impossible Revolution, quote, the Syrian revolution is one of a working society, of people who make a living from their work, as opposed to those who live on the profits of their position or power-associated privilege, unquote. That right there, that gets to the important part of the Syrian revolution. Those people that he mentioned, the, the working class, the people who, who make their living from work instead of, instead of from who they know. Finally, these people are getting a say. Well, okay, it's not so much that they're getting a say, more so that they're finally standing up and demanding one. So now we're at a point in the story where we reach what one could call, perhaps, an interlude in the chaos and unrest. Not entirely, but that's just sort of a way you could describe it. I'm trying to get better at um, pacing this, at not just going on and on and on and on, trying to get better segments in the show. So, alright, segment change. Things are kind of calming down, but not... Things, things are calmer at this point than they were the day before. You can put it that way. March 19th to March 24th is this period of time between two different days of chaos. But they were still chaotic in their own right. You've still got protests going on. You've got funerals for people who were killed on March 18th, causing more protests on the 19th and the 20th and the 21st. And then more people get killed there, and then they have funerals, and that causes more protests. So you can see how the snowball effect is taking place. And you also have the regime's reaction. Between March 19th and March 24th, the Syrian government's reaction to what's going on in Syria could basically be described as... It's its own form of chaos. It's a chaotic panic, basically. Actually, there is one place that's sort of the exception to this trend I described that didn't really calm down very much. And that place is Dara. Yeah, Dara. I know we keep mentioning it over and over again. There's, I mean, there's a reason why people say it was the epicenter of the Syrian revolution. Because it kind of was. 
Dara is going to come up over and over again in this episode and future episodes. So once again, we turn to Dara. On March 19th, when things have relatively calmed down elsewhere in the country, 20,000 people gathered at the funerals for people who had been killed the day before. And then these, and like I said, these funerals end up becoming their own protests. And once again, the government responds by firing off tear gas and live ammunition, killing more people, injuring more people, and angering more people, thus causing the larger protests we saw in the days that followed. At the risk of sounding crude, the Syrian government's actions between March 19th and March 25th are, of, are often described by Syrians as being schizophrenic. Again, I... I don't mean that as an insult for people who suffer mental illness, but that's the word you often hear when people from the country talk about this. So March 19th and March 25th, you've got incidents of state brutality mixed with half-hearted attempts at appeasement. You know, a small number of political prisoners were released, but you still have more people being subject to threats or arrest. It's like every every time everything they do as like a measure of appeasement is canceled out by another episode of brutality because you it's not just an example of the left hand not talking to the right you've got a dozen different departments not coordinating with each other a dozen different intelligence agencies and other other state government offices and one measure they instituted in an, in an attempt to quell some of the unrest they started enforcing curfews in places like Damascus Qasem Eid describes this in his memoir, My Country. Somewhere between March 18th and March 21st, this incident took place. Quote, Agents armed with AK-47s would scream at any resident they saw on the street. There's a curfew. Get the hell off the streets, you dog. If you don't get back inside your house, I'll go inside and rape your sister. Unquote. Damn. That was a short passage from My Country, Qasem Eid's memoir. I, sh I should say now, if I hadn't said already, Qasem Eid is a, was a resident of Modamia. That's a town right outside of Damascus. So it's somewhere around March 20th when we finally have word of Bashar al-Assad, the tall man himself, finally taking a personal role in the matter when he finally sent a delegation to Dara. His delegation offered condolences, but didn't offer any concrete change. They, they made no mention, really, of the teenagers and young men accused of spraying graffiti on March 6th being released. And in this span of time, you start to see protesters gather in and around the Omari Mosque again. Now, okay, I know I already mentioned the Omari Mosque on the 18th. That was its own thing. Now, on March 20th, when people are gathering at the Omari Mosque, this is going to be the start of one of the first major standoffs. I mean, I'd go as far as to call it one of the first battles of the Syrian civil war. I'll just say it. So you've got this third day in a row of protesting in Dara, where security forces once again open fire on them. And now some of the protesters responded to being shot at. They've been getting shot at for how many days now? 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st. Okay, so it's been three or four days now. They've been getting shot at every day. Some of these people finally respond by rioting. They ransacked and burned a local Ba'ath Party headquarters, a, a courthouse, and a branch of Rami Makhlouf's cell phone company. They were all attacked and set on fire. And sadly, seven police officers were reported to have been killed during the rioting. And one thing they would do, if you look at pictures from the time, you'll see a lot of smoke in the background. They, they, 
they would take tires and set the tires on fire. And this thick black smoke made it more difficult for the cops and the soldiers and the Shabiha to shoot them all. At this point, the highest levels of the regime are starting to realize that the situation in Dara is getting completely out of control. Let's turn to another quote from Sam Daguerre's book, Assad or We Burn the Country. I love this quote. It really shows just how, how scared the highest echelons were at this point. Quote, On March 20th, Bashar al-Assad called Manaf Tlas. Unquote. Real quick. Okay, so Manaf Tlas is one of the top guys in the regime. He was at the time a brigadier general in the Syrian Republican Guard. He was also a childhood friend of Bashar al-Assad's, by the way. There's this I know this episode's already getting kind of long, but some other time, I want to go deep into detail about how these two guys met. They were basically, their dads were friends, and their fathers put them together and instructed them to be friends and partners as they grew up through it. It's insane. I'm, it, we're going to have a bone, we're going to have an episode focused very soon on like Bashar al-Assad's early life and how he became a dictator, and that's going to be one of the, one of the chapters in that story. But so at this point, Manaf Tlas is a brigadier general in the Republican Guard. He's one of Bashar al-Assad's right-hand men, been a lifelong friend of his. So on March 20th, Bashar gets scared, and he calls Manaf for help. Going back to the quote, quote, On March 20th, Bashar called Manaf Tlas at the base. It was their first contact since the deaths in Dara. Bashar decided to follow the advice of hardliners like his brother, Maher, and cousin Hafez on how he should deal with Dara, but he still wanted to sound out other people close to him. Maybe there were other ways of bringing the situation under control. Maybe he was missing something, or not being given the full picture by the hardliners. He also wanted to see where everyone stood on what, on what just happened in Dara. Who was in favor of a tough response, and who was not? What's your decision? Bashar asked Manaf. My decision is that you throw Atef Najib in jail and sack the, and fire the governor. Go down, to, go down to Dara tomorrow and make peace with the people, said Manaf. He told Bashar that the families of the dead should be generously compensated, and all of those detained in Dara, including the boys who had sprayed the graffiti, should be released immediately. What do you know about the dead? asked Bashar. They were killed during the protests. They're not from powerful families, but you should still go down and be conciliatory, said Manaf. Manaf explained that this would quickly bring the situation under control, the idea being that Bashar's gesture would mean a lot to Dara's people, who were, seen by the, who were seen within the regime as simple and emotional tribal folk. These are generous and good-hearted people, said Manaf. Okay, said Bashar, before ending the call, unquote. That was an excerpt from Assad or We Burn the Country by Sam Daguerre. A lot of people, including a lot of Syrians, would say that there were steps Bashar al-Assad could have taken in this span of time to prevent the violence that took place afterwards. Now, Assad himself didn't go to Dara. Instead, he sent a delegation on March 20th, and they didn't achieve the results he had hoped for. Because really, it's kind of hard to establish goodwill with people while your soldiers are shooting them. Yeah, not, not great communication. Like I said, the whole government response was very uncoordinated. And that contributed to what happened on the next day, on March 21st. On March 21st, thousands of people gathered in Dara for the funeral of someone who was killed on the 19th. And a, and a similar scene played out once again. Okay, another funeral, people gather, it turns into a protest, it gets, and then the security forces attack it. So Assad sees this, and he gets worried. He's like, oh, yeah, we, this isn't turning out how we th like we thought it would. 
And he ordered, and he personally ordered the release of some of the people who were arrested on March 6th. And he even starts firing some of the people who helped cause this mess. So finally, he takes some of Manaf Tlas's advice. And in this, the Syrian, the protesters achieved one of the things they wanted. They did want corrupt and abusive officials like Atef Najib held accountable. And you didn't quite see people arrested like the protesters wanted, but at least you see people losing their jobs. It's a start. But even still, you still have hundreds of people protesting in Dara and other cities because they still want the end of the emergency law and the re release of political prisoners, some of whom have been held in prison for most of their entire lives. All right, so now, chronologically speaking, we return to the, the Omari Mosque in Dara. Real quick, I, I want to say one thing about the mosque real quick. The Omari Mosque, at, it was one of the oldest mosques in the world at this point in time. It, it was built right around the earliest days of Islam in Syria. It is very old. This was a this was a mosque well known not only in Syria but throughout the world. It's a revered place. So that's what that's why what I'm about to describe next was so shocking to people. Imagine don't don't think of your average church. Think of like the Vatican. Think of something on that level. Like that kind of ancient so on March 22nd, the protests at the Omari Mosque, which at this point security forces have been threatening to take back by force for days, things took a really ugly turn. The security forces opened fire. They just sprayed people, violently evicted the protesters from the area. Several people were beaten up or shot. According to a BBC article written at the time, quote, Some protesters had erected tents outside the mosque, they said that they were going to remain there until their demands for greater political freedom and an end to corruption were met. But shortly after midnight, the power supply and telephone lines to the area were cut. Witnesses said police released tear gas and fired live ammunition at protesters around the mosque. Ali Ghassab al-Mahamid, a doctor who had gone to help victims of the violence, was killed, Reuters news agency reported. One witness said he was shot dead by a sniper. A political activist said the old quarter was in darkness. It is still difficult to know exactly what happened. Unquote. Later on, the survivors went on to tell in greater went on to describe in greater detail just what exactly happened. One of these people is quoted by Wendy Perlman in her book "We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled." Quote, the first pro the first protest was on Friday, March 18th. Then there were the funerals and more demonstrations. On Tuesday night, a sit-in began at the Alomari Mosque. Around 3 o'clock in the morning, regime forces stormed the mosque from all directions. They killed dozens and injured more. They burnt holy books and wrote things on the wall like, Do not kneel for God, kneel for Assad. People in all the surrounding villages heard about the massacre in Alomari Mosque and started coming to Dara City. They entered, chanting, Peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. And then the security forces opened fire on them. Imagine, this village has ten dead. This village has five dead. This village has three dead. This has two dead. This is how the revolution exploded in the entire province. Each funeral became a protest. That was a quote from Abu Tharir, an engineer from Dara, quoted by Professor Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. Now, 
A quick note about Syrian geography. Syria is one of those places where the, uh, the provinces all have the same name as the provincial capital cities. So Dara, the city of Dara is the capital of the province of Dara. The city of Aleppo is the capital of the province of Aleppo, so on and so forth. So because you have all these people coming in from the from the small towns and villages surrounding Dara, these people are coming in to the main city of Dara and getting killed there. With that, the uprising in Dara begins to spread outside to those smaller communities. You know, like Abu Tharir said, suddenly it spread from the city to the entire province. It was somewhere around this point in time when the government kind of started to get a bit more coordinated in its response to the uprising, at least to, at least on the media front, somewhere around March 23rd, at least in somewhere around the span of time. It's hard to say exactly. This is when the regime started claiming that the protests were, were part of some foreign conspiracy. Usually, in, usually these claims involved Israel. That Israel's basically Syria's geopolitical nemesis. So, you know, if, this, if, if, if Bashar al-Assad was going to blame any foreign country for meddling in Syria, of course he would blame Israel. Ironically, though, the Syrian government also tried to blame the unrest on Palestinians. Supporters of Bashar al-Assad will often try to paint him out as some kind of defender of the Palestinian people, but that's really not true. In Syria, as is the case in Jordan and Lebanon, Palestinians are treated as second-class citizens. Even people who were, who were born in the country, spent their entire lives living in Syria, if their parents were Palestinian, they are not considered Syrian. Palestinian Syrians are not considered Syrian. They are considered second-class citizens. So, Palestinian Syrians, so people in Syria of Palestinian descent were not surprised at all when they saw regime state-controlled media trying to blame the unrest on, quote, Palestinian refugees, unquote. So while the Syrian government was trying desperately to find something other than itself to blame for the protests going on in Syria, the presence of security forces in Dara was being reinforced. Effectively, the city was being put under occupation. Cell phone and internet service in the city was cut off in an attempt to prevent protests from being organized. But even still, you, you still had people try to gather. You still had people try to chant, God, Syria, freedom only, and peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. You still saw people trying to do that. But the increased presence of police and soldiers just made it, it com compared to earlier, it was untenable. But some brave souls still tried, and you did still have somewhere between a dozen to 30-something people killed in Dara and elsewhere in southern Syria on March 23rd. One really, really dark part of this story is how not even hospitals or ambulances were safe. Protesters, if they got shot, they didn't want to go to hospitals because they were scared that they would be reported to the authorities right there. There, were, there are stories of protesters who were shot or otherwise injured who got into ambulances and then were were then killed in the ambulances when they arrived at the hospital because there were soldiers posted at the hospital waiting for people to show up with gunshot wounds. Does he have a gunshot wound? Okay, he's a protester. Kill him. Not even hospitals or ambulances were safe. If someone was injured, they had to go somewhere where a doctor was working, proverbially speaking, underground in order to save people's lives because the government controlled the hospitals. The government paid 
the paramedics. So if you get injured by the government, your options are very limited. People from a place like the United States might have a hard time understanding why soldiers and police officers would be so willing to engage in such brutality against their fellow citizens. And because of that, I want to turn to one more quote. This is a quote from a different book. This is, this is a quote from Brothers of the Gun, a memoir written by Marwan Hisham. He, he, was, he, was orig- he is originally from Raqqa. He was one of the protesters. And I, of all the different memoirs I've read in researching for this podcast, I found, a, I found a passage that I think really describes the soldiers very well. Quote, The conscripts they sent to disperse our crowd were in the middle of their mandatory two years. From the soldiers my relatives told me about their own military service, I knew something about what that meant. In the Syrian Arab Army, unquote, yeah, that's really what it's called, Syrian Arab Army, ethnic nationalism, all that stuff, quote, only one allegiance mattered. You were your general's slave. Disobeying an order meant betraying your country. Otherwise, you were on your own against all other creatures with only yourself to count on. To live meant to pray and to devour. Sympathy was a weakness. No one cared if you survived. This trauma robbed soldiers of their emotions. They became bitter automatons, casting aside all mercy, glorying in their contempt for anyone outside themselves." That was an excerpt from Brothers of the Gun, a memoir written by Marwan Hisham. I mean, that, that's what protesters were going up against. Protesters were going up against people who were so brutalized. But even still, on March 24th, you still saw 20,000 people in Dara take to the streets and risk their lives to protest at the funerals of nine people who had been killed the day before. And a similar, and a similar scene played out once again. More arrests, more beatings, more gunshots... More attempts at window dressing reform, more releasing of certain political prisoners while continuing to engage in violence against protesters and arrest more people. Once again, the same complicated, dare I say, schizophrenic scene played out once again. It's at this point where I'm starting to sound very repetitive that we get to the biggest of the big days in this episode. Now, if to people who've been listening to this, y'all probably thought that March 15th, or March 18th was the day that all hell broke loose in Syria. No. That day was March 25th. March 25th, 2011 is the day that all hell broke loose in Syria. The largest protests thus far, bigger than ones we'd seen in the past, much, much bigger, the largest protests thus far, took place on what some people have gone on to call the Friday of Dignity. Somewhere around 100,000 people took to the streets in Dara. Again, Dara's not a very big city. Hundred, around 100,000 people took to the streets to, to protest. I'm not talking about thousands of people. I'm not talking about just tens of thousands. I'm talking about somewhere in the high tens of thousands at least, if not more. This was very close to being one of the first openly anti-regime protests throughout the country. They weren't yet using the classic Arab Arab Spring chant, Ashab Yurid Iskat on Nazam, the people demand the fall of the regime. They weren't saying that yet. But 
for the last week and a half at this point, protesters in Dara have been getting shot at. And when you've been shot at for multiple days, generally speaking, people get irritated. These people are angry as hell now. Earlier on March 18th, they were done asking nicely for Bashar al-Assad to deliver on his promises and reform the system. Now they are demanding it. Now they are angry. They were demanding it. Excuse me. They were demanding it on March 18th. Now they're past demanding it. They are shouting from the rooftops. A hundred thousand people have gathered in Dara to vent their rage against Bashar al-Assad and his failures. They also insulted Bashar al-Assad's brother and some might say chief evil minion, Maher al-Assad. Maher is basically the militaristic, slightly more deranged version of Bashar al-Assad. I'll go more into detail about Bashar, Maher, and the rest of that family in, a, in another episode another time. Basically, all you need to know about Maher al-Assad at this moment is that he prides himself on being this strong military figure, and these people, these protesters, were calling him, among other things, a coward. They were literally saying, Maher, you are a coward. Now, as is typically the case in a, in a situation like this, typically a majority of the people who go out into the streets are there to protest, to use words rather than actions to express their anger. But what often happens is you have a small minority of, of those people, a, a single digit percentage who decide who end up deciding they'd rather engage in rioting rather than peaceful protest and as is often the case those rioters and their violent actions were used to smear the nonviolent majority so while a majority of the people who were gathering in dara were protesters a small number of them went on to engage in riots they ransacked the governor's office tore down pictures of Bashar al-Assad. Remember, Bashar al-Assad, as the dictator of Syria, has pictures of himself in every public place. They're going around tearing his picture down. That's unheard of in Syria. And to top it all off, not only did they do that, not only, not only have they already gotten into territory where they could get tortured to death, they just committed this grave, secular sacrilege tearing down Bashar al-Assad's pictures. On top of that, they also tried to set a statue of Hafez al-Assad on fire. I've seen the video. They they set it on fire. They they didn't destroy it. They didn't succeed in destroying the statue. But I mean, it's in flames at one point. I have seen the pictures of it. And in in this in this secular authoritarian nationalistic fascist state, this is equivalent to heresy. This is a, this is a country where the dictator is worshipped by some people as a god. There's a reason why they call it cult of personality. And in the Assadist cult of personality, what these rioters in Dara, who make up a small percentage of the roughly 100,000 people protesting at the moment in Dara, what these rioters have just done is like the ultimate heresy or sacrilege. I mean, there, there's a reason why a few days earlier at the Omari Mosque, they reportedly spray-painted graffiti saying, don't kneel for God, kneel for Assad. I mean, some of these some of these soldiers and Shabiha really do mean that. So I'm not sure exactly how they reacted when they saw Bashar al-Assad's pictures being torn down and Hafez al-Assad's statue being set on fire and Maher al-Assad's name being dragged through the mud, being called a coward. 
I don't know exactly how they reacted, but I can tell you what happened next. The soldiers and the Shabiha and the other pro-government militia types, they all started shooting. I don't know if it was because they just saw it happening and they were just like, oh my god, this is unbelievable. And they just like, it was just like an act of hot-blooded rage. They just opened fire. Or maybe they got orders, maybe they received orders from higher up. I don't know, but either way, they started shooting. Another reason why, another reason why March 25th, the Friday of Dignity, stands out is because you also had a widespread proliferation of the protests. They've already, it's already been spreading, but now it's like, it's like, we're not just at stage two anymore, we're at stage three. That's how much it's spread. But it's not just like major cities like Damascus. Now you've also got cities like Latakia, cities like Latakia, Tafas, Raqqa, Al-Sanamain, I have no idea if I said that right or not. Places where there hadn't been protests before are having protests against not not the regimes specifically at this point, but against what people have been complaining about, the corruption, the brutality, everything I've been going on and on about in this episode. Now more people are joining in. And the places that had had protests earlier, like Damascus, they've, they're having even bigger protests. And the third reason why March 25th stands out is because of a sharp rise in the number of people killed by the regime. This wasn't just warning shots and then one person being killed here, one person being killed there. No. March 25th, 2011 was the day when the Assad regime began to massacre protesters. Headlines from the day report 20 people dead in one place. 20 people dead in a different city. All in all, it adds up to a about, all in all, it adds up to at least a hundred people being killed across Syria in a single day. Shabiha and soldiers would spray crowds with automatic fire while snipers would randomly pick off protesters. The message was clear. They're not going to hesitate to kill people anymore. The regime would soon claim that the protesters in Dara and elsewhere were armed and that their forces fired in self-defense. But protesters and journalists who covered the protests have consistently denied this claim. Zaina Hodor is a Lebanese journalist who managed to smuggle herself into and out of Dara, despite it being increasingly sealed off by Syrian security forces. This is what she had to say. Well, I was in Dara for more than five to six hours yesterday. Um, we watched the march. We attended the funeral. I did not see any arms on the protesters. I cannot really be sure if that was the case in other areas, but in Dara, definitely, I did not see even a gun. And that's what people there told me, that we are unarmed. We just want to protest peacefully so that we will um, achieve our rights. The man was very clear. This is not a revolution against the regime. I did not hear one chant against the president. President, one chant calling for the downfall of the regime. People there are definitely angry. A lot of blood has been spilled, and this is a tribal region. The culture of any tribe, uh, tribe is revenge. So the government really has to work very hard right now to reconcile with the people of this area if, the, uh, pro if they're going to be able to contain the unrest and, and stop it from spreading to other areas. That was Zaina Hodor speaking to Al Jazeera English shortly after March 25th, 2011. In early 2011, this is shocking. It's shocking to see a hundred people killed in a single day by security forces. Imagine that. Imagine you wake up one morning and you hear 
that a hundred people who were protesting in various parts of your country were killed by police or soldiers or just pro-government thugs. How would, that, how would you react if you heard that? People in Syria are shocked by this. They are shocked by what... They were already shocked by what was happening in Dara. Now they're shocked at what's happening all over their country. A hundred people were killed in a single day. That's what it took for the outside world to finally, to a certain extent, start paying attention to what's happening in Syria. March 25th is the day when English-language media finally spent time devoted to covering the protests instead of covering instead of covering the Egyptian revolution or some other hot topic of the day. And it's at this point when the Syrian opposition, as they will come to be called, starts to make its debut on the world stage. This this opposition would would be a wide-ranging collective of liberals who wanted a somewhat dare I say, secular democracy. I kind of hesitate to say secular because that word often gets associated with authoritarianism. Assad loves to portray himself as secular. So, you know, liberals in the Middle East don't like it when you call them secular. I would call them liberal Democrats. You had those people, you had religious fundamentalists, and you had everything in between. Those things, those two labels, liberal, pro-democracy, or religious fundamentalist, those aren't always mutually exclusive. And so it's it's on March 25th where the world finally started paying attention to the fact that us that Syria is not just Assad that there is another side to Syria that does not approve of his rule of his corruption and of his brutality and I'm saying his now for a specific reason up until now people had been careful they didn't they knew what could happen if they mentioned Bashar al-Assad directly so instead they talked about stuff. They didn't make it about him. They wanted Atef Najib held accountable. They wanted corrupt, abusive officials held accountable. They wanted certain people, especially those detained on March 6th for allegedly spray-painting anti-regime graffiti. They wanted those people released. Nobody was saying the people want to bring down the regime yet. But what happened on March 25th contributed to that. The people kept giving Bashar al-Assad, they kept giving the man himself chance after chance after chance. Every single time, he spurned them, and he sided with the people who were killing him in the streets. With the exception of a single-digit percentage of the protesters, these are people who weren't engaging in violence or rioting. They were assembling in the streets, they were marching, and they were, they were chanting, Peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. Semeye, 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 God, Syria, freedom, Allah, Syria, Haraya. Or just they, or they just be repeating the word freedom over and over. I know it sounds cliched, but this is really what they were chanting. I know it sounds like, sounds like a ripoff of Braveheart, but yeah, that's how it, that's how it went down. And that alone was enough for soldiers, police officers, and militia thugs to start shooting them. Not warning shots, shooting the people and killing 100 of them across the country in a single day. That's why March 25th, 2011 stands out. We're not yet at the stage where the Syrian opposition is unanimously calling for the overthrow of Bashar al-Assad, or at least calling upon him to resign. We're not there quite yet. We're not at the Ashab, Yurida, Scott, and Nizam phase yet. But there's a new chant 
that protesters can be heard chanting after the events of March 25th, 2011. This new chant, when translated into English, goes like this. Whoever kills their own people is a traitor. Protesters are getting pretty sick and tired of being killed in the streets. At this point, on March 25th, 2011, nearly 200 people across Syria are dead, and thousands more have been arrested, subject to beatings, and torture. A storm is now raging in Syria. Actually, no, that's the wrong metaphor. A fire is spreading. It started in Dara. That's still the epicenter, but now it's spread to Damascus and other cities. Arrests, beatings, and killings in broad daylight are taking place all over the country. And every time a protester is punched, kicked, stabbed, bludgeoned, or shot, a little bit more fuel gets poured on the fire. And consequently, the fire keeps getting bigger. The funerals for protesters killed days earlier become their own protests, their own scenes of state violence. They become their own servings of fuel for the open flame. The fire is becoming a large, raging blaze as more and more people take to the streets to vent their outrage at the government's corruption, incompetence, and abuse. Protests are becoming larger, more frequent, and more widespread. Security forces and regime supporters are attacking protesters with similar frequency and increasingly resorting to outright murder. Arrests here, a massacre there, and the fire just keeps getting worse. More and more, protesters in Syria can be heard chanting, Whoever kills their own people is a traitor. Supporters of the government and supporters of the opposition are now starting to see each other as enemies, as traitors to their country. But even still, it was not too late to prevent what ended up happening later. Not yet. At this point, in late March 2011, before overthrowing the regime became a priority for the protesters, Bashar al-Assad still had a chance to make concessions. He still had a chance to de-escalate the situation. But that's not what happened. Instead, Assad chose to pour out the entire proverbial gas can out out onto the open flame and turn it into a giant bonfire. That's the next chapter of this story. The next episode will show why calls for reform were replaced by calls to overthrow the government. Thank you for listening to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. This episode didn't turn out quite as expected, at least not from a production standpoint. I had intended to start on March 15th and end this episode on March 31st, but this has already gone on for way too long. I'll have to make some changes to the upcoming episodes, but overall we're still on track. Just need to find a way to make the episodes shorter. Sorry about that, y'all. Shorter episodes will be a goal going forward. If you think we got something wrong or want to come on the show as a guest, go ahead and email us at whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. That's the title of the podcast with no question mark and then the word podcast in it at gmail.com. It's literally whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. One word. Just want to be absolutely clear. You can also follow us on Twitter at SyriaPod. That's 
at symbol, uppercase S, Syria, uppercase P, pod. Follow us on Twitter so you can stay up to date with us on future episodes. If you like what you heard and you want to support future episodes, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash whathappentosyria to support us for as little as $1 a month. You can access bonus episodes for just $3 a month and also join our exclusive Discord server for $5 a month. You can also get fan-requested content and a shout-out in each episode when you join as a VIP patron for $20. Thank you to all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator and host of What Happened to Syria. We'll see you next week.